0: Your Bible open to Psalm 145 and you're going to be in great shape today. Uh, sometimes we may not consider ourselves to be great at praise. But I would say praise comes a lot more natural, a lot easier than what we might realize. It just depends on the context and the object. For example, I remember well when our first daughter was born. And I remember well how much I talked about her and all the events around her birth to anyone who would listen. And I would describe in detail how incredible my wife was and how gifted the doctors were and how um, surprised I was at all that happened and then how perfect this child was who came out with a cone-shaped head, but from there her head shaped normally and uh, would describe all these mundane details about her day-to-day existence. She's Her head is this big around. She displaces this much water. She's by far smarter than other newborns her age. And it's just clear that she's advanced and just the praise came naturally, easily. It just flowed and it was to everyone. It was the subject of conversation for anyone in my orbit. That might have been why a lot of people avoided me during those early years of Emma's childhood. But still, uh, it came naturally and easily. And so it does for you, whether you're talking about someone you love a child of yours, or just a great restaurant, praise comes naturally, easily, uh, as you describe to others the thing that you're crazy about. But sometimes we think of praise towards God as something complicated, something clunky, something that might feel even burdensome. But Psalm 145 shows us the better way, the way for you and I to be people of praise, Now, in this Advent season, each Sunday during this month, we've been focusing on a different theme for Advent, the traditional themes, hope and peace and joy. Today's theme is love, but Psalm 145 isn't necessarily about love, although the love of God is worded and named in it. Uh, It doesn't teach us how to love necessarily. It doesn't even necessarily teach us explicitly about God's love for us, we're going to take a different angle on love today. The question for us is not, what is God's love like? The question is, how should we respond to God's love? That's what Psalm 145 does for us. It teaches us how to praise God who has loved us so by sending His Son. Psalm 145 is not exactly a Christmas text, but it's perfect for this season. In these past three Sundays, we've studied Isaiah chapter 9, Micah chapter 5, and then Isaiah chapter 49, those three in order. So Psalm 145 gives us words of praise for the one who, according to Isaiah chapter 9, is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. Psalm 145 gives us words of praise for the one who, according to Micah chapter 5, stands and shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord. Psalm 145 gives us words of praise for the one who, according to Isaiah chapter 49, is the servant through whom God the Father displays his splendor, the one who says to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness be free, words to the God who comforts his people and has compassion on all his afflicted ones how do we respond to the love of God? We respond with an all-consuming life of praise. So that's my goal today. It's quite simple. My goal today is to lead you to praise God. There's no other outcome of studying Psalm 145. It doesn't challenge us in any other way. It calls us to join the choir of praise and to lift high the one who has loved us in this way. Now, before we read Psalm 145, it's a really unique, even a little bit of a quirky psalm. Let me give you a bit of information about it before we read. First of all, if you look before verse 1, there's a title, and that title should say something like, a psalm of praise of David. This is the only psalm in the entire book of Psalms that's called a psalm of praise in its title. Isn't that interesting? There's certainly... There certainly are other psalms that we would call psalms of praise, but this is the only one that carries the title. If you look at the very next chapter, Psalm 146, it opens with the words, praise the Lord. So there are other psalms that are psalms of praise. In fact, the entire rest of the book, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, they're all psalms of praise. But this is the only one that gets that title. It's communicating to us the meaning and intent of this song. It's written by David, the David. This is the last of David's psalms collected in the book of Psalms. Uh, The psalms after this are not written by him, but by other authors. Something else unique about Psalm 145 is this. This wouldn't come out initially on the reading of it in in our English translations, but Psalm 145 is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. When it's written in Hebrew, Each verse begins with a different successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first word of verse 1 starts with A, Aleph. The next verse starts with B, Beit. The next verse starts with G, Gimel. It's the A, B, G's. It's Hebrew, not English. Everything from A to T, that's Hebrew for you. Aleph to Tav, a little Hebrew nerd humor for you this morning. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. The Hebrew alphabet, not the English alphabet. And so it's, it's all these successive words and lines of praise to God for all the way through the alphabet. There are eight psalms like this one, eight acrostics like this in the book of Psalms. This is the last one collected here at the uh, end of the book of Psalms. So it's a really special chapter. It is one of the most um, profusive chapters of praise of God in the entire Bible and it's the right one for us to read today on Christmas Eve Eve. Follow along with me. Psalm 145. A psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God the king. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. "'Slow to anger and rich in love. "'The Lord is good to all. "'He has compassion on all he has made. "'All you have made will praise you, O Lord. "'Your saints will extol you. "'They will tell of the glory of your kingdom "'and speak of your might, "'so that all men may know of your mighty acts "'and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. "'Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, "'and your dominion endures through all generations.' The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name forever and ever. Since this is such a unique psalm, put together in such a unique way, I'm going to approach it in a different way this morning. Uh, rather than going verse by verse through Psalm 145, or, or rather than uh, working a structure in the text and then giving that to you, instead, I want to simply summarize what the psalm says by first talking about the God we praise, and then talking about the people who praise Him. There is a bit of a structure that I could impose on 145 that would guide us through. But today I want us just to soak in the whole picture of these words of praise to God. These words describe Him and they describe us. And so we're going to begin with the God we praise. What is this God like? David talks to us about God's character and God's work. And first, I want us to talk about God's character. Now, I've given you a bullet point list of these different attributes of God that are described in the chapter. I would encourage you not to just write them all down in your notes right now, but rather we're going to walk point by point through them. Take notes as we go along, but it's here for the sake of your ease of taking notes. It's going to help us to see what David saw and to sing like David sang. What is God's character like according to Psalm 145? Well, first of all, God is unfathomably Great. What a terrific word. Unfathomably. Uh, He is great beyond our comprehension in our understanding. Uh, In fact, the psalm opens this way in verse 3. It says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Your translation might read this way. It might say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. At least that's a line that we're familiar with in some of our singing. Great is the Lord. Something you need to know about God's greatness is that no one and no thing is great like God is great. Now We toss the word great around in all kinds of scenarios. We might call an athlete great, or we might call a dessert great. Sometimes we use the word great with an ironic twist to it. You get stuck in traffic and you say, great, great. So it's hard to take a word that's so familiar and so common and then increase it to the magnitude required to describe God. In fact, it's almost impossible to do. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 3, tells us that God's greatness, how great is He? His greatness cannot be fathomed, meaning we cannot understand it. It's impossible for me. To communicate how robust, how huge, how mighty, how eternal, how deep is the greatness of God. Because I don't understand it myself. My finite, squishy brain can't get there and neither can yours. We're given this word, great, without the ability to quantify it. Because God is great beyond our understanding. That's how great he is. That doesn't mean we just walk away from it. Rather, it means we stand in awe of it. There's going to be a day when we see face to face, we see his glory with our own eyes. Then we will understand better what his greatness is like. But for now, he is great in a way that nothing else and no one else is or can understand. And that's a God who's worthy of praise. Not only is he unfathomably great, he's abundantly great good not just good he is abundantly good verse 7 that's the wording that david uses god is abundantly good and then in verse 9 he tells us god is good to all that's what his abundance looks like the abundance of his goodness is it's not just measured out in small portions to some to those who earn it those who are the best he is abundantly good and he is good to all what if he wasn't good He's not required to be good. He could be great, and he could be cruel, but that's not God. He is great in a way we cannot understand fully, and he is abundantly good to all of his people, good to everyone. What's curious about the goodness of God, it's not just a trait we observe, but it is a trait that we experience His goodness is for the benefit of His people. We know God is good because we have experienced that goodness in so many incredible ways. He acts out of His goodness for our well-being. Our God is unfathomably great. He is abundantly good. The next characteristic is this. God is compassionate. Here's the love of this Advent Sunday. God is compassionate. Verse 8 has an important Hebrew word. I don't mean to be so Hebrew heavy today, but this word in verse eight, I think is important for you as a follower of Jesus to to memorize, to know, and to carry around with you in your back pocket. Look at verse eight with me. It says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. So in this NIV translation, that last word love is the word I'm keying in on. The Hebrew word used there and translated love is the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's probably a word you've come across in previous studies through Old Testament texts. It's an important word. It's worth the effort to learn it. It means more than simply love. It can be translated as steadfast love or faithful love. Many of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul. He liked the translation loyal love. It describes God's love for his people as being genuine, immutable, unchangeable, and loyal. God is for his people and will never cease to be for his people. And doesn't that add a little oomph to verse 8? The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in loyal love. The reason he's slow to anger, the reason he's gracious Is because this is who he is. He's a God of loyal love. When we are not loyal, when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. The reason he's gracious to us is because he has to be. We require grace, and God is a God of loyal love who gives that grace, who gives compassion, who is slow to anger, rich in loyal love. You know what else adds oomph to verse 8? It's not the first time you've heard this line before either. You heard it first in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. That's where the glory of God passes before Moses, and these are the words God uses to describe himself. You also have heard these words from another unlikely source. You heard these words from the lips of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. Do you remember this? Jonah is sitting on a hill overlooking Nineveh, and he is angry at God because God has not vaporized Nineveh off the face of the planet. And what is his complaint to God? In Jonah chapter 4, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, O Lord, take away my life. Jonah finds insult in the grace and compassion, the loyal love of God. You might have also heard this very same line in Numbers chapter 14 or Nehemiah chapter 9 or Psalm 86 or Psalm 103 or Psalm 111 or Psalm 112 or Joel chapter 2. It's a defining line for understanding who God is. So often we make this sort of weird dichotomy about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. God of the New Testament is grace. Grace and fluffy, and puppy dogs, and rainbows. But the God of the Old Testament is bloodthirsty and angry. But that's not at all who God is. He's not one in one and something different in the other. Start to finish, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. That's who he has always been. That's the way his people have always understood him. That's who he was then. That's who he is today. God is full of compassion for his people. David repeats this in multiple places in this chapter, verse 8, verse 9, at the end of verse 13, and then also in verse 17. He comes back to God's love, God's compassion, over and over and over again because it is rocket fuel for our worship. It feeds our praise of God. To know that God, who is great and good, is also compassionate towards us, is a remarkable thing. The next characteristic we could point out is that God is faithful to his promises. Last half of verse thirteen tells us the Lord is faithful to all his promises. How many of his promises? How many does he keep? He keeps he keeps most of them, right? He's he's good for the majority of them. No, he keeps all of his promises. Every commitment he makes, he keeps. Everything he says he does, he does. There's no place where God fails at keeping His Word. So God keeps all of His promises. Promises like Psalm 50, verse 15, where He says, Call on Me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify Me. Promises like Isaiah 41:14, where He says, I Myself am your Helper. Promises like... Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He keeps that promise every time. Promises like Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. He keeps that promise. He never fails his word. And haven't we seen this in our study of these Advent themes? So we've been in Isaiah and in Micah and now here in Psalm 145, it reaffirms what we have seen and known and experienced that what God promises, God does. He's faithful to His promises just as He's faithful to His people. Final characteristic we could pull out of this chapter is God is righteous. In verses 7 and 17, we're told that the Lord is righteous in all His ways. David uses a lot of superlatives in this chapter. I love it. How many of God's promises does He keep? All of His promises. To whom is God good? To all He has made. Uh, How is God righteous? He's righteous in all of His ways. to To call God righteous in all His ways is to say that He's in no way deficient or sinful. There's no thing that God does that doesn't align with that which is true, good, pure, or holy. All that God speaks, all that God acts, all that he does, all of it is right, it is righteous, and that's what the character of God is like. So this is a snapshot of God's character. Just we just dip into chapter 145, pull out our hands, and these are the things we see of God. He's great, he's good, he's loving, he's faithful, he's righteous. But that's not where David stops. He doesn't just stop by telling us this is who God is. He goes on to describe What God does. So God's character are these things. Next, I want to show you what God's work is like, according to David in Psalm 145. Again, I'm going to give you a bullet point list, and I encourage you just to take notes as we walk through this. What is God's work like in Psalm 145? Before we get to the bullet points and the notes, just let me describe for you the adjectives that David uses to describe the work of God. Here's some of the words he uses. He says that God's work is mighty in verses 4 and 12. He says God's work is wonderful in verse 5. In verse 6, he says God's work is awesome. He also says God's work is great. Again, here, here are these superlatives that just pour out of David and they land on the page. Um, as you read slowly through 145, you might get this sense that there are times when David has so much to say about God, it just, he can't hardly get it out of his mouth. He just piles up incredible phrase after incredible phrase after incredible f- phrase. For example, twice he uses the line, the glorious splendor of your, one he says majesty, second he says kingdom. Not just the splendor of your majesty, but the glorious splendor of your majesty. The glorious splendor of your kingdom. David just oozes all of these incredible big words and phrases to try and describe the undescribable. Mighty, wonderful, awesome, great. God's work is not deficient in any way, not disappointing in any way. It is not shoddy in any way. God's work is perfect. So on this next slide, I want to show you what God's work is like. When we talk about God's work in Psalm 145, what are we talking about? First of all, we're talking about the fact that God reigns. God reigns. That The centerpiece of Psalm 145 is God's rule and his kingdom. The, the psalm opens, verse 1, with the line, I will exalt you, my God the King. I'll exalt you, my God, the King. I, I love that line, my God, the King. It reminds me of the opening line of the great commandment. We studied this just a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. And You remember the opening line that Jesus gives there. He says, you shall love the Lord, your God. We camped out in that simple line that we've said so much but thought so little about, the Lord, your God. Uh, He is the Lord, whether or not he is your God. He is, by his very identity, his existence, his person, he is the Lord. But then for the Lord to be my God is something altogether different and something unbelievably wonderful. That the Lord would be my God is amazing. And Psalm 145 opens the same way. I will exalt you, my God, he is God and he is the king, the king who is my God. That this one who is great beyond comprehension, who is good to all, keeps every word, accomplishes what he wants to accomplish, never fails, that one is my God. It's an incredible concept. My God, the king. He's the king who rules. In verses 11 through 13 really spell this out for us, but unlike every other ruler, God is in office for life. There's no transition team to move from one heavenly administration to another. There are no inaugural ceremonies because God has always eternally been on his throne. There's no concern over the qualifications of a vice god who should have to step in should the big god not be able to perform the duties of his office There are no tearful goodbyes to staff, no waves goodbye from a helicopter, uh, no transition from the heavenly oval office making way for his successor. He's always been God, always reigned. Among earthly kings, especially British lineages, we hear of James I followed by James II. We hear about Charles I followed by Charles II and Charles III and so on. But there is no Yahweh the first and Yahweh the second. He alone is God. He is the first and the last. There is no other. No one precedes Him and no one succeeds Him. He alone is the God who reigns forever and ever. What's it like to live under God's reign, under God's rule? Well, that's what all these other things describe for us. God reigns, and here's how He Carries out his duties as the king, the sovereign ruler of all creation. What else does he do? Well, he lifts the broken in verse 14. It says, the Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all those who are bowed down. I love that picture of a God who possesses a greatness we can't understand, yet he knows us well enough, intimately enough to know when we are broken and to come and lift us, to pick us up. He's the God who is present with those who are voiceless, those who are downtrodden, those who suffer injustice. Verse 14 is a word of comfort for those who are hurting even today. He lifts the broken. Verses 15 and 16, God meets our needs. It says the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Verses 15 and 16 might be appropriate to read as you pray before your big Christmas meal or the next day when you're eating leftovers or later in the week when you have breakfast for dinner. Whatever it is that you do, verses 15 and 16 speak of God's provision. He meets the needs of of his children, We pray this way also as followers of Jesus Christ. Only we say it this way, give us this day our daily bread. God answers prayer in verses 18 and 19. This is another example of God's work. Verse 18 tells us the Lord is near to all who call on him. God hears your prayer when you call on him, not because the amplification system is so good That you speak from earth and then boom, the signal goes into the cosmos and God receives it far away someplace. He doesn't hear your prayer because your life is the amplifier that merits getting a hearing. As if he has all these requests coming in and he goes, "Mm, loser, bum, train wreck, oh, here's my precious one. That's not how the system works. How is it that God hears your prayer? Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He hears from within your trial. He's near in your brokenness. When you are bowed down, verse 14, God is near and hears your cry for help, verse 18. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. And then finally, verse 20, another example of the work of God is God judges the wicked. The Lord watches over all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. Verse 20 is not something we need to avoid simply because it makes us a little squirmy, or we would rather just look at more flowery descriptions of God. Rather, verse 20 is a teacher to us. It's a warning to those who do not walk with God. And then it's also a reminder that the judgment of God is real and the judgment of God is praiseworthy. God vindicates Christ and he vindicates his children through his righteous judgment on mankind. So this is what God's work is like. Reigning, lifting the broken, meeting our needs, uh, answering prayer, judging the wicked What an incredible picture David gives us of the God who is great and good and faithful and present and all these things. God's character is seen in God's work. His work is a reflection. It's like a mirror of God's character. As we understand the work of God, we understand the person of God. And all of this work is understood first and foremost as the work of redemption, These are not individual tasks that God clocks in to accomplish and then fills out a report at the end of the day. All of this wrapped into one big ball, especially at the Christmas season, looks like this. It is Jesus Christ, God the Son, who was prepared and sent by the Father, born of a virgin, and then died in our place for our sins. After he died, three days later, he rose from the dead And he promises everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If I put my trust in Christ's death, if I believe that he is God in the flesh, that he really died in my place, and that his death is sufficient, it's enough. I don't have to add anything to it. I don't have to bring anything else to the table. I just trust in his death and resurrection. God gives me new life. I am counted righteous and holy as Jesus was. He's counted sinful as he bears my wrath for my sin. That's how he becomes my God, the king. He's always going to be the king. The question is, is he your God? God's character and God's work is wrapped up in your salvation. He's done all of this so that you might be forgiven from your sin and be drawn to him. That's not all David gives us. He's given us God's character. He's given us God's work. Last he talks to us about the people who praise this God. How do we respond to such a God? What should our praise look like? What kind of praise does God deserve? Now, here's a lot of bullet points. And these are all the words that David uses to describe the ways we praise God in Psalm 145. Oh, it's, it's a whole lot. He's on thesaurus overload when he sits down to write this under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. He says, we exalt God. We praise Him in verses 1, 10, and 21. We extol Him. That's a word we don't use a lot, but it means something similar to exalt. We put God in His high place above everything and everyone else. We commend His works and we tell of His works to others. We speak of His works. We meditate on them. We proclaim the works of God. We celebrate the work of God. We joyfully sing of who He is and How frequently do we do this? We do it every day. And for how long should we do this? Forever and ever, he says multiple times in Psalm 145. Here's David just stacking these words on top of each other to describe what a heart flooded with thoughts of the splendor of God looks like. This is what it is to belong to the God who stooped down, who came to us in the person of Jesus. Our response is a response of praise. But it is possible that we do not have a proper understanding or a proper practice of praise. Really, we don't have a robust enough practice of praise. We may primarily praise God during our worship gatherings, and at the very least we should do that. It is right and proper that we would gather together and lift our voices as we praise God by reading His Word, by singing truths about His Word, about Him, back to Him. But we should at the least praise God in that way. But doesn't the psalm teach us explicitly that the praise of God should happen, well, every day? (laughs) I don't know how you shut that valve off. When you understand the love of God and you have experienced the salvation that he brings, I don't know how you just say, I've got 30 minutes on Sunday morning to give praise to God. It's not just one thing in a list of many things. It is the environment in which we live. It's the natural response. It just comes out of us. It exudes from us because God is so wonderful and our lives have been so radically changed. Since God is grand, we should sing. But we may wrongly assume that praise is a reference only to singing. In our day, though, so often uh, when it comes to the praise of God, we confine it to singing songs together. But that's not how we practice praise in other realms. When we praise other people or we praise other things, we don't do it through song. We just do it through word. Can you imagine if your boss came to you to praise you for a job well done and she did it through song? (laughs) You hit all of your sales numbers this quarter. Your cubicle is the raddest. It would be so weird. And that is how I sing. It's beautiful, isn't it? People people say, Cody, you have a voice like nothing I've ever heard. That's right. If your boss sang your praise, that'd be strange. But look how many times over and over again, David just talks about speaking the praise of God. Sing, yes, absolutely. Speak unequivocally, all the time, every day, it ought to be a natural thing for us to speak of the praise of God to other people. There's a word we use in church life to describe telling the story of God to other people. The word we use is the word evangelism. and Isn't that what David has described in Psalm 145? Only he's called it praise. I'm going to tell of your mighty works. So that all men on earth might know. We think evangelism is strategizing, winning debates, answering the tough questions, one-upping the skeptic. That's not it at all. It's praise of God in front of people that don't know Him but need to know Him. It's telling the story of His might and wonder. In fact, there's this incredible expansion of praise throughout this psalm. Verse 1, the psalm starts with, I Will praise. And then verse 4, generation after generation will praise you. Verses 5 through 7, they will praise you. Verse 12, all you have made will praise you. And then the last line of all, every creature will praise you. It starts with the microscope and oh, it goes to this broad view every creature praising God. That's the kind of praise God deserves a life wrapped up in it, a life that exudes it, a life that speaks it, sings it, talks it, prays it, just naturally, naturally gives praise to God for all He's done. So Psalm 145 gives us a song to sing. It gives us words to speak in response to God's work in our lives and certainly for God's work at Christmas. Now David wrote this psalm with only some of the promises of a future and coming king. He didn't know all the things we know. He didn't know Isaiah 9 or Micah 5 or Isaiah 49. He didn't know any of those things. He didn't know of the angel's visit to Mary or the angel's visit to Joseph or of Elizabeth's pregnancy or of the birth of John the Baptist or of the birth of Mary's baby, Jesus or of the angels who gave glory to God in the highest, or of the shepherds who went glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, David knew nothing about all of that. And he certainly didn't know about Jesus' death on the cross or his resurrection three days later or the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. You have seen and experienced so much more than David. David praised God for promises yet to come. How will you praise God for the promises that have been fulfilled? If David were to rewrite Psalm 145 today, what would it be like? What are the superlatives that he would use to describe all that God has done in response to keeping his promises? It would be all of 145 plus so much more. So what should our worship of God look like? Well, in a word, it should be great. Our praise and honor and joyful celebration of God should be great because that's how verse 3 instructs us. Great is the Lord and greatly, greatly to be praised. True worship must always be proportionate to the object of our adoration. One pastor said it this way, no chorus is too loud, no orchestra too large. No psalm too lofty for the lauding of the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, join with me in living a life of great praise for our great God. Would you pray with me, please? Uh. Our God, the King, let us respond now in a way instructed by Psalm 145. That we would praise you for your mighty work, your awesome deeds, for all that you have done. We would exalt your name for who you are, a God mighty, omnipotent, omnipresent, a God who is all-loving, a God who is faithful in loyal love, a God who keeps every promise, every word. Let us be a people who praise you with song and with word and with our lives and with our thoughts that we would meditate on your greatness, that we would speak your greatness to others. Lord, that we would proclaim your greatness to all men, to all ends of the earth, that we would be able to stand and say to your creation, let all creatures you've made praise your name. Father, you have given us the song to sing. I pray this morning that we would join that choir. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They can't say, my God, the King. They can say, that God, the King. But Lord, would you awaken faith in them today that they would make it my God, that they would know you. They would begin on their journey of praise and adoration for who you are and all that you've done. And for my brothers and sisters this morning, as we think about your love to us, through Christ who came, born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose again, is coming again. Lord, let our lives be lives of praise. That influence those around us for your glory and for their salvation. Lord, we extol you, we exalt you, we praise your name every day and forever and ever. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen.